1: Quick note of disclosure on this show, which first posted on September 1st, Robert Smith talked with Lena Kahn, who works with the Open Markets team, which until recently was a project of New
2: America. We should have mentioned that Slate's Future Tense program is a partnership with New America and Arizona State University. Slate had no involvement in Open Markets parting ways with New America. And now back to the show.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs>
2: It's Friday, September 1st, 2017. From Slate, it is The Gist. I'm Robert Smith from NPR, filling in for my old friend and former colleague, Mike Pesca. Today, today, the Friday before Labor Day weekend, used to be a very special day in the news business. It was the last official day of the summer doldrums, the end of the slowest month of the year. This was a sort of unspoken agreement in the news industry during August. All of the newsmakers, the president, the senators... The dictators, the Nazis, they would all take the entire month off. And the big name hosts, your Anderson Coopers, your Michael Peskas, they would take the month off too. And those of us on the B team would wear shorts to the office. We would file puff feature stories all month long until the news could start again in September. It is almost inconceivable now. But at NPR, we would have elaborate meetings in the spring about how can we possibly fill all of that radio programming during the slow months of the summer. We would come up with series. Just make them up. Uh, books you can take to the beach. Our favorite summer foods. One year, it was cheap vacation thrills. I did a feature where I tried to sneak into a drive-in movie theater in Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, wait. Watch your head.
2: In the trunk of a car. Okay, okay, that's it. Oh, it's the worst. Never lock yourself in the trunk of a car. <sighs> oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. And yet, in August of that year, it was considered news. Another year, the summer time filler was those crazy national parks, or we probably had a more serious headline for that. But I profiled the smallest national park in the nation, the Thaddeus Kosciuszko National Memorial. The whole park is basically the second floor of a row house in Philly with these very serious pretentious displays.
0: This is such a small room, such a small room for such a great man.
2: So we've been open for a while and nobody's coming through the door. We've had no visitors yet, but that's not uncommon. It's a waiting game. It can be. This is what national reporters got paid to do in August in the old days. Now, of course, the entire concept of a slow news month is gone. In August of this year, the president went on vacation but did not stop talking. One American city was inundated by racists, another by water. So many stories, NAFTA, the wall, Dhaka, Afghanistan, Bannon, Gorka, Kim Jong-un, fire and fury, both sides, the moon blotting out the sun. And that's fine. Like, as a news reporter, I'm not going to complain about news happening. But I do miss those August moments when you would turn on the radio, afraid that something terrible was happening in the world, and you would all of a sudden hear an NPR reporter profiling a woman we made tiny little replicas of food for dollhouses. Now, as I look at this little salad, and this is a little salad bowl about the size of a nickel, and, and, there's, and there's little cucumbers and, and mushrooms and, uh, and, and carrots. carrot
1: slices and, and cherry tomatoes. And, how do you know when
2: to stop? <laughs> you really don't. And an entire nation hearing that story would know, wow, nothing is happening in the world today. And everyone could go back to vacation in peace. Today on the show, I will spiel about what happens when reporters become heroes, or try to be, live on the air from the flooded streets of Houston. But first, an interview with Lena Kong, who, as a law student earlier this year, took on one of the most powerful forces on the planet, Amazon.com. And we'll talk about if the internet giants require a new kind of antitrust law. Woo! You know who had a good week this week? Amazon.com. They took control of their first brick and mortar business, Whole Foods, and and all the big news coverage was about how amazing their prices were. Amazon's first act as an owner of a new grocery store was to slash fair trade banana prices by 30%, uh, responsibly farmed Atlantic salmon down 33%, orphaned baby kale off, even locally sourced Echo speakers were on sale. And Forgotten this week seemed to be the concern that the world had just a few months ago. Is Amazon getting too big? You may remember when the purchase of Whole Foods was announced, stock in every other grocery store retailer plunged. People feared that the grocery business was this new world that Amazon was going to conquer. But the federal government looked at the purchase and said, eh, seems fine. And Amazon cutting prices was the exact opposite of the thing an evil monopolistic corporation would do, right? So this week, it seemed that the free market triumphed or did it. A number of consumer groups and liberal think tanks are starting to argue that there needs to be a different way of thinking about monopolies in the Amazon and the Google era, maybe a new set of antitrust laws to handle these new kinds of companies. Lena Kahn laid out what these new laws might look like. She's a legal fellow at the Open Markets Project, which until this week was part of the New America Foundation. We'll get to that. Lena wrote this really smart and detailed dissection on antitrust law in the Yale Law Review. Thanks for coming out to The Gist, Lena. Thanks for having me. So why do you hate cheap avocados? (laughs) Like, seriously, like, what is your problem with uh, plenty of arugula, with eating healthy, with, with prices going down? I mean... Businesses are there to serve the consumer, and if they're serving the consumer with quality products at a quality price, I just don't see what the problem is.
1: I think there are a couple of potential problems. One is that short-term consumer prices are not an effective gauge for long-term competition. So if Amazon is able to price goods below cost in a way that drives out other businesses, it will then be in a position where it can, in fact, raise prices. So it the, can, but we
2: don't know if it will.
1: Sure, but there's a basic question about whether we want to turn a total blind eye to enabling a market structure that will then allow a company to you know, raise prices. We, so we $10
2: avocados eventually.
1: Exactly. I think the other point here is that antitrust law is also supposed to look at producers and suppliers. And if Amazon is selling cheap avocados in part because it's squeezing farmers and requiring farmers to undertake losses and making their business unsustainable, then that isn't a um, great way to ensure a competitive and healthy marketplace going forward either.
2: We know that Amazon, they're, they're a store, they're a delivery network, they're a TV producer, they're a book publisher. They just got into podcasts through Audible, hired many of my coworkers. But that's many different markets. If you take any one of those individual markets, Amazon does not control a huge share. You know, if you look at clothing, most of the clothing we buy is not from Amazon. Most of the electronics we buy does not come from Amazon. Even in this grocery store acquisition, it's just 2 3% of the market. So antitrust law, when you think about it, it's really these giant companies that control a majority of a market. And yet Amazon doesn't in any market.
1: Well, I'd say in the book market, it actually does. In the ebook market, you know, it controls over 50% of that market. I think in other sectors, it's important to think about the ways in which Amazon is able to leverage its advantage in one line of business in order to advantage another line of business. It is a platform, but it also competes with the companies that depend on its platform to favor its own goods and services. Well, when we play the game of
2: Monopoly, right, it's a pretty simple thing. The board game, right? You buy up a bunch of properties. And if you own all of one color, you can raise the rent when an opponent lands on it. Like like that's a very cut and dried version of monopoly. But for the entire history of antitrust in this country, it's always been one of those weird things to like, how do you define it? And one of the interesting things about the paper you wrote was to walk through the, that historically, this country has looked at monopolies in a different way. I mean, 100 years ago, it was big as bad. If you're huge, if you own huge shares of the market, if you own uh, the suppliers and the outlets, a sort of vertical monopoly, then you are bad. But then, then the view changed. The view changed to sort of a consumer-based thing. Do we actually have to pay more? That was the definition of monopoly. Like, why did this change?
1: the foundational concerns were political, right? There was an understanding that in the same ways that concentrations of political power threatened democracy, the concentrations of economic power similarly threatened democracy. And so antitrust enforcers looked at how open a marketplace was, whether a monopolist would be able to use its size and power to disadvantage competitors in anti-competitive ways. When we switched to the consumer welfare model, which is what you're referring to, there was a um, intellectual movement behind that. It was the Chicago School and the Law and Economics movement that effectively overthrew a generation of anti-monopoly thinking. And they said, "What, what matters when we're thinking about competition is not power, is not opportunity, is not competition as measured by how many rivals there are in a market. It's instead going to focus entirely on whether this is good for consumers, which is largely measured through the prism of prices.
2: Well, explain this to me. The fear of a monopoly is that one person is going to take over, one company is going to take over an entire market. And then once there's only one outlet for shoes or cell phones or whatever it is, they can jack the price up and they're going to hurt us all. They're going to hurt us as consumers. And as I look at Amazon, they've been notable for, I mean, to be frank, like making our lives better. I mean, prices are affordable. Prices have gone down. The shipping is convenient. It has been a benefit to the consumer. So if it's not creating bad things for the consumer, how can you say that Amazon is a monopoly or engaged in monopolistic practices?
1: Consumer welfare is not the only thing to care about. Traditionally, we also cared about whether other entrepreneurs and other um, independent producers had access to a marketplace. So if you are a small retailer or a small producer and you're trying to reach consumers nowadays, you engage with a massive company that has enormous bargaining power and is able to squeeze you, um, is able to dictate terms. Well,
2: give me an example of a competitor that was hurt by Amazon and Amazon's policy of, of low prices, say.
1: Sure. So we had um, a few years ago, there was a company called Quidsy that sold diapers. Um, diapers Diapers.com was the main way and it was doing really well. You know, it had pioneered a particular way of of selling a lot of diapers very well. Amazon actually reached out to diapers.com seeking to acquire it. The founders at that time were not interested in selling it. And so Amazon engaged in a aggressive price war undercutting these producers on their diapers, you know, losing millions of dollars by pricing diapers below cost. So the founders ended up selling to Amazon.com. It's also worth noting that Amazon, in fact, did go on to raise prices on diapers after acquiring diapers.com. So, you know, there were a lot of people who had been using Amazon precisely because of its discounts that were then eliminated after it acquired diapers.com.
2: Part of what makes me so skeptical about putting antitrust laws against Amazon is is because I feel like I've been burned before on this. When I was a reporter starting out in Seattle in the 1990s, I covered Microsoft. There was an antitrust action against Microsoft. Everyone was worried that Microsoft was going to control the world because they controlled the operating system of most computers. And everyone had to go through them in order to make their programs work on computers. But of course, 20, 25 years later, nobody worries about Microsoft taking over the world. I have no, I don't think I own a single Microsoft, product anywhere in my house i don't use microsoft and i feel like i shouldn't have worried about it that someday some other company is going to make amazon look uh out of date like they were too slow like they didn't see the next big thing coming and we'll laugh about the days when we thought amazon was going to control everything
1: so I think Amazon controls the infrastructure of 21st century commerce in a much more expansive way than Microsoft did. I mean, you know, Amazon owns online platforms and is the dominant platform. You know, 50% of all online shopping searches now begin on Amazon. Amazon took 40% of all online revenue generated in the U.S. last year, and its share is growing faster than the market as a whole. So we can expect those numbers to increase. But aside from having a dominant online platform, it's also massive. It has also has a massive logistics network, right? So it's investing not only in warehouses and trucks, but also in jetliners and and shipping fleets. It's very difficult to foresee how a competitor would be able to enter these lines of business and compete with Amazon.
2: So under antitrust law right now, no one is clearly going to touch Amazon. How do you think the law should change? How does it change, in your opinion, to deal with something that we've never seen before like Amazon?
1: (laughs) I think there are a couple of approaches we could take. One is to restore traditional antitrust principles, um, some of which would include ensuring that a infrastructure company, that a platform company is not allowed to compete with the very companies depending on its platform. So we would set strict limits, strict prophylactic limits on forms of vertical integration and cross ownership.
2: So, So what's an example of that?
1: So, for example, Amazon, you know, directly retails, but then it also has a third-party marketplace where other businesses are retailing goods. So there's no reason why Amazon, you know, should be um, uh, t- should necessarily have those two businesses joined under one company.
2: So, in o- so in other words, uh, they shouldn't both own the platform and have uh, businesses as their customers and compete with those same businesses by selling the exact same things that the other businesses sell.
1: Exactly. So, you know, in media markets, there was a traditional principle that said, if you own the pipes, you shouldn't also be producing the content that would ride those pipes, because similarly, there would be, you know, an analogous conflict of interest there.
2: And so what's the other way to do this? Rather than sort of smash up Amazon, you could simply regulate them.
1: Exactly. The approach we took with railroads and industrial age network monopolies was to regulate them, was to impose certain non-discrimination principles that said that you're not allowed to use this power to kind of pick winners and losers um, among the companies that are dependent on you. You have to allow equal access um, and charge fair terms and, you know, make your network available to all on equal terms.
2: After you published this article in the Yale Law Review, where you talked about the problems with Amazon and ways to uh, hobble the company uh, in its drive to domination. Did you hear from anyone in Amazon? Did anyone at Amazon call you? Did Jeff Bezos call you and say, hey, come on?
1: <laughs> Jeff Bezos did not call me. I had heard that. Representatives from Amazon contacted uh, some professors of mine, and then the general counsel for Amazon also reached out to New America, and which is where the open markets program had been.
2: And we should say here, you, when you published this article, were a third-year law student. So when they contacted your professors, they were contacting your current professors.
1: Exactly. They were contacting, you know, some of the professors that had overseen my work. And so when they reached out to New America, um, a team of lawyers came in to meet up with us. And so we had a meeting to you know, discuss some of the issues that I raised in my piece.
2: Now, normally, both academic freedom and sort of journalistic freedom protects people who write things like this. But we should say that this week, something else happened at the New America Foundation where your project, the Open Markets Project, used to be. Uh, tell us what happened there.
1: My project was asked to leave New America after some of our work complimented the European Union for instituting a fine against Google and I- implementing a certain non-discrimination principle which you essentially
2: encouraged. you essentially criticized Google.
1: We essentially in- encourage uh, U.S. authorities to follow the EU addressing some of Google's anti-competitive conduct. Google ends up you know, funding a lot of New America's activities. Google, I think, put New America in a position where it felt that it had to choose between allowing open markets to say or endangering the funding of other programs.
2: You've been writing about Amazon and uh, your colleagues have been writing about Google as a sort of theoretical legal matter. And then all of a sudden, um, literally, one of these companies, Google, is threatening your job and your future and the future of your project. How does that feel to be confronted by the actual company that you were dealing with, sort of theoretically?
1: I think in many ways, it's proof of concept of our work and of the effectiveness of our work. One of the principles animating our work is that Monopolies are bad, not simply because they threaten to, you know, lead to higher consumer prices or even necessarily undermine productivity and growth, but monopolies are bad because they're bad for democracy. The companies that acquire a lot of power are able to use that power to shift debate, to squelch research, to steer ideas and information. And I think we saw that take place here in a very vivid and concrete way. What
2: are you going to do now?
1: I'll be staying with the open markets project. Uh, We're forming a independent organization that will be standing up. So I plan to continue my legal research with them for this upcoming year.
2: I guess I can guess who is not going to be underwriting this project. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thanks so much, Lena. Thanks. And now the spiel, we can be heroes live on TV. I was on an airplane last weekend coming back to New York, and I was desperate for news about what was happening with Hurricane Harvey in Houston. So I'm watching CNN on the seat back in front of me, amazing technology, and I saw something remarkable. CNN reporter Ed Lavendera is broadcasting live from a boat. I don't even know how he does it, but he's broadcasting live from a boat. He's cruising through the flooded streets of Dickinson, Texas, and he hears someone call for help. And all of this is happening live.
0: Anna, there was a woman, we were about to leave this neighborhood, there was a woman who had kind of flagged us down that her and her two elderly parents were still stuck inside the home. So I'm going to put the mic down. We're going to help them try to get back into into the boat so we can get them out of here. So I'm going to, I'm going to put the microphone down uh, while we help them get into the boat. Okay.
2: They pull the boat right up to the door of the flooded house, and an elderly man sort of Holds the door frame. He looks really disoriented, and Lavendera starts to lift the man up onto the deck of the boat.
0: I'm just going to let this this play before our eyes, and, and I'm not going to say much. But if you are just joining us, this is live right now on CNN in Dickinson, Texas, you get as Ed uh, Lavendera is in a boat with one of the volunteer rescuers helping people out of their homes who have been stranded. Jason, you want to come up here and help? I can help lift you if that's okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah. One,
2: two, three. It was riveting in a way that I haven't really seen before. I've covered a lot of disasters. I've covered hurricanes and floods and wildfires. And usually the live shots on TV are some reporter in front of a bunch of palm trees, you know, bending in the wind. There's someone walking behind him with a surfboard. You've seen this. But technology has gotten better. You don't need a big truck with a satellite and the antenna. Now you can broadcast in perfect clarity from tiny boats, from the literal doorstep of disaster. And watching this happen on CNN, I got this feeling that I've had before in a disaster zone. And it's the feeling of not knowing what's about to happen, not knowing what is behind the door, not knowing if you're going to see a dead body or someone injured. This moment you experience sort of personally when you're covering disaster this moment is all of a sudden being broadcast to the world and you can see live on TV the reporter pause ed lavandera is all of a sudden he's not sure what to do next
0: i got i got to be honest uh, the daughter t- the daughter told us that uh, her mother has alzheimer's so that's complicating the situation yeah so um we'll probably be, let's let's be a little bit delicate here cuz i don't know what kind of condition his uh, her mother's in let's uh Let's kind of give give us a second to kind of, you know, you know what I mean? We want to be sensitive to this family. family I I, I haven't seen her and I I don't want to. Amazing things happening right now um, in Dickinson, Texas, where this gentleman was just rescued. Ed, we'll let you do the work that needs to happen there on the ground. And we'll check back in with you and that family when the time is appropriate.
2: CNN cuts away from the scene. And I'm not going to lie. I thought, no, 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 no. Keep rolling. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see The end of the story. And I will admit that is the worst part of my character. But of course, this was the right thing to do. Turning off the camera in retrospect was humane and it was classy. It was a moral lesson to reporters everywhere. TV, of course, took the wrong lesson. And that was, oh, my God, rescuing people on television is amazing. And the next thing you know, every time I turn on CNN, there is some reporter, national or local, rescuing someone live on the air. Here's one from uh, KTRK. The reporter spotted people trapped on a roof. And this time, nobody put down the camera. The camera zoomed in on the victims being rescued. Obviously very, yeah, very difficult because he said he has a pacemaker on his left-hand side near his heart. So we're going to have to steer clear of that, obviously, and uh, I'm going to try and get him on the ledge here. So
0: we can have him sit down and then we're going to take him off. But
1: this just shows
2: you... Another time it was a CNN reporter, Drew Griffin. He pulled a man out of a truck that was being swept away.
1: Are you doing all right? Your heart doing okay? Okay. You're alive, sir. You're alive. Why don't you just go step out of the rain for a second? John, this literally just happened. Uh, Scott and I and Brian Rokas just rescued this fellow. There was no time to call 911. He was floating down... This ravine. That's his truck. That's his truck right behind me. All right. No profanity is live TV. Okay. No All right. I'm just saying it's a, it's an no, Hey, work. uh, I want to thank these guys for saving my life.
2: You got to have the thank you. It is. It is amazing to watch. And I don't want to criticize my fellow reporters because they are in a tough bind. If they can save a life, of course, of course they should save a life. That's their job as human beings. And, You know what? As reporters, they should also be telling the world everything that's happening. That is also their job. It's just that the technology these days allows these two things, the reporting and the rescue, to happen at the same time. And I don't think we've fully thought through what this means. Covering disasters is already emotionally fraught. I have been there. You are interviewing people at the worst moment in their life. And you're always careful to make sure that they're ready to talk about what happened, that they know who you are, why you are there, how their interview is going to be used. But if you just rescued them live on the air, they don't really have the choice to be on TV or not. And frankly, they do kind of owe you one. You're their hero. There is already a huge power imbalance between the reporter and the victim in a disaster. And this just makes it worse. You could see this frustration in another live shot I saw on CNN. This one wasn't a rescue. It was from an evacuation center. A woman who had just escaped her flooded home with her kids just kind of goes off on the CNN reporter.
1: But y'all sitting here, y'all trying to interview people during their worst times. Like, that's not the smartest thing to do. Like, people are really breaking down and y'all sitting here with cameras and microphones trying to ask us what the fuck is wrong with us. So I'm so and you're really man. trying to understand it with the microphone still in my face, sorry. with me shivering cold, with my kids wet, and you still putting the microphone sorry, in man. my face. Sorry. Uh, Rosa
0: Flores, uh, it sounds like you've got a very upset family there. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, from that. Uh, and
2: we'll get you know, none of this stuff would have bothered me when I was a younger reporter, because back then— I came down the side of broadcast it all, live, whatever. Truth is truth. It is not my job to censor reality. This is what's really happening, and the world needs to see every minute of it. But these days, I don't know. I'm just not so sure. For instance, on on my own show, Planet Money, it's an economics podcast, we're working on a piece this week about paying ransom to kidnappers. And it centers around the story of a young woman who was kidnapped and tortured in Africa. And as part of the story, we found a cut of tape that might be the most emotional, chilling thing that I have ever heard. It is a recording of this young woman on the telephone, pleading with her mother to pay the ransom. And when you hear her voice on this tape, you can tell it is the voice of someone who is completely broken. It is like this raw id coming out, and you can never get the sound of this out of your head. But... I am not going to play this tape here. And in fact, we're not going to play it on Planet Money. We discussed it all week long. We listened to it again and again and and thought about different ways to write to it. But in the end, it just didn't feel right. Some things are so emotional, so visceral, that it becomes impossible to sort of talk rationally around it in a podcast. It it would have been the only thing you remembered from the show. Now, other reporters, other editors, other shows – They may have made a different call about this piece of tape. And that's okay. Like in this business, you kind of have to go with your gut. But you do have to have a few moments to actually, you know, check your gut. And that's kind of hard to do when you are live on the air, talking to the world and rescuing someone at the same time. CNN? CNN eventually went back to Ed Lavandera, the one who turned off the camera to help the woman with Alzheimer's onto the boat. And when the camera came back on, the woman was now sitting quietly next to her daughter. They clearly had a moment to compose themselves, to regain just a little bit of their dignity. And the reporter, Ed Lavendera, he didn't talk about himself. He didn't talk about his role in the rescue. He talked to the people whose story
0: he was supposed to tell. Were you worried that you know, we're getting pretty close to nightfall here? Were you worried that you weren't going to be able to be pulled out in time before we, dark? Or? Yeah, we were just starting to because uh, we found out there wasn't a rescue. And then we heard the Coast Guard can take a couple days. days. Uh, we didn't know. Right. How are you feeling now? Happy. Very happy. <laughs> very happy. Very blessed. S- sorry you got stuck on the boat with the CNN crew here. No, I'm glad. <laughs> but shoot. We're glad. We're very happy.
2: We find out in the interview that Pam Jones, the daughter, had come out to check on her parents, had spent the night in the flooded home. She didn't know when or even if help would ever come. Ed Lavendera, he comes off in this as a pretty damn good reporter. Pam Jones, she comes off as the hero. That is it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Daniel Schrader produce the gist. Amazon gives them 4.6 out of 5 stars. Reviewer D. Lazaro says, be careful. They come two to a package and are slightly different sizes. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, 4.4 stars out of 5. Note, he does not come with a cord. It must be purchased separately. Mike Pesca is out of stock this week. We're expecting back in the warehouse next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. Free shipping with the following phrase, umperu, deperu, duperu. I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. 2017 from Slightest Suggest the I'm Mike Pesco. Why do people always feel like they got to warm up? Like they weren't talking all day long. People talk all day long. Of course, if you're going to talk all day long, you're already warmed up. I don't understand it. It's as if, what are they, monks? They don't talk to anyone all day. Oh, I don't ever say anything. So I better say the tip of the tongue, the tip of the tongue, the tip of the tongue, the tip of the tongue. It's me channeling. I got a channel.